This episode is brought to you by Health Carousel. Health Carousel provides world-class staffing and workforce management solutions designed to improve lives and make healthcare work better. And so what I would say is trust in yourself is that there are certain things about you that you know that you're going to be able to accomplish and you know you're going to be good. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. A blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. Listeners, I am so excited. I have Dr. Christopher Radchenko. Yes, it's a wonderful last name. We're going to talk about the origin of his last name. But he is an interventional pulmonologist. He's the medical director of the Incidental Lung Nodule Program at UC Health. And this is a really important um, episode for me because it's Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And uh, my dad passed away from lung cancer. So Actually, and my grandfather did too. So it's definitely a genetic thing. And the work that Chris is doing using AI, we're going to talk about because it's just amazing. He's also going to share some great examples of how he failed forward. But I just want to say welcome, Chris. Well, thank you very much. I just want to send a shout out to all your listeners. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Gonna, we're going to have such a good time. And when we talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, we could have talked for like two hours. It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chris, started us out. Um, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? How did you get to Cincinnati? Perfect. Okay. So um, my name is Chris Verchenko. Um, I'm one of the lung doctors, one of the interventional lung doctors at University of Cincinnati. Um, I've been here now almost three years. Um, I was born and raised, though, in Wainwright, Alberta, Canada, which is a very small town in Alberta. Um, and then we ended up moving towards the city as I grew up. So we grew up near Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Okay. And then I'd spent the majority of kind of my adolescent years there. Um, and then I'd gone to middle school, high school, and university there at the University of Alberta. Um, I studied... Um, I studied biologic sciences, and then I pursued a medical career. Um, I'd been over to a, a few different places, ultimately landed in Kansas City, spent close to 10 years um, in Kansas City. Um, Which is kind of similar to Cincinnati, right? It is, yeah. A Midwestern city. Um, my family loves Kansas City, probably uh, maybe a little bit more than Cincinnati, but um, uh, I think it's growing. We won't admit We won't <laughs> So then I'd spent around 10 years in Kansas City. I was at University of Missouri um, in Kansas City. And then I had done my training um, for interventional pulmonology um, at Virginia Commonwealth University. What is the difference between interventional and non-interventional? Because you've said that a couple of times. So um, in the world of pulmonology and critical care, that's the common um, pathway that people will train. So it's a three-year fellowship that people will train in after they do internal medicine. So of of course we um, enjoy getting beat down and taking even more years of training. So if you, (laughs) if you want to continue on where there's other sub sub specialties that you can, that you can specialize in and interventional pulmonology is one of those. And it's a one to two year program after all of that training. 
Okay. All right. So where you grew up in Canada, small town, like, uh, like farmland, like, what was it like? It was, so there were certainly, you know, an environment where there was a farming community and those types of things. Um, but we always yeah. lived within the town. So, um, you okay. know, but it would be a small town, you know, something on the order of 5,000. And then we moved slowly towards the city and we ultimately ended up living in one of the suburbs. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. And what, tell us Redchenko, what nationality is that? Redchenko, it's a Ukrainian last name. Um, it's funny that you bring that up because everyone will look, actually, even just yesterday, someone looked at me, one of my patients and said, are you Russian? And I said, no, no, I, I, I'm Ukrainian. But I'll tell you, I know no one um, in Eastern Europe. I've never been to Ukraine, never been to Russia, um, but the name goes back several generations. It's a great name. It's a strong name. I like it. Cool I think name. I think it's actually, and we'll have to look this up. I think it might be a figure skating move. Someone has told me Stop that. Stop it. I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be. Yeah. A figure okay. skating move. Yeah. That's really funny. Okay. All right. So um, why pulmonology? So pulmonology, um, first of all, when you're going through medical training, you always think you know something. You always think you like something. So you'll say, you know, I yeah. want to be a cardiologist or I want to be a surgeon or something. And then you realize, you know, that I can't stand all day or I'm not good enough at something or I actually don't really like it as much as I thought I did. So yeah. um, I was interested naturally in almost like everything that I was studying on that rotation at the time. So then ultimately, I one of my mentors kind of... Um, told me about the fields um, and kind of where the future might be going. And so I landed on doing internal medicine residency. Okay. And so from there, after you complete residency, then you can specialize in some of the other subspecialties. And so um, I, um, when I was doing internal medicine, I spent time in the ICU and I think that's where I really enjoyed my time there. Um, I liked anesthesia when I was a medical student and I was really good at airways. What do you mean by airways? Can you explain that? Sure. So um, when people are trying to get an airway, if they were to refer to that, it usually means that someone needs to have to be put either on a ventilator of some sort and needs to have some type of uh, co connection. And that's usually through a breathing tube. And so it can be, it's a common skill that people have um, and certain specialties um, really have expertise in it, like our anesthesiologists ears, nose, and throat doctors. And so um, I had gotten, you know, exposure when I was a medical student to um, mm -hmm. airways, and I was pretty good at them. And so as an internal medicine resident, when I did my rotations in the ICU, I was do putting airways in and they were saying, how does this intern know how to do all of this stuff? And so I think after that, that kind of um, steered me more towards um, the critical care element of it. And then after being in the ICU, again, I still work in the ICU at UC Health. Um, it was, uh, it's still enjoyable. I enjoy being there, but I kind of had more of a, of a, um, of an interest or a curiosity in more of the oddities um, of some of the conditions that we deal with, which is okay. um, the whole realm of pulmonology. And then we started getting into doing procedures and then pulmonology and then kind of put the two together. And then I just kept going with it. And I heard of the field of interventional pulmonology, which is a newer field that's, that seems to be continuing to grow. And, um, and so I really enjoyed it. So I ended up applying and uh, applied for fellowship and did additional fellowship and did interventional pulmonology. So 
take us to present day around AI and how you're using that with, with the, t- tell us about that program. Sure. So we're very excited here. There's a lot of excitement at UC Health because in June of this year, we launched this program called the Incidental Pulmonary Nodule Program. Incidental nodules only, okay? This isn't lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening, we have a separate program for that. Okay. Um, it's not follow-up scans for patients that previously were diagnosed with cancer. It's so specific that it's okay. Everybody, it's very specific, very specific. <laughs> and so, well, what is an incidental pulmonary nodule? Well, they're everywhere, okay? And it's the fact that we live in a histoplasmosis, which is a fungus in the environment, an endemic yeah. region, is there are even more people that have pulmonary nodules. And it makes it hard because a lot of them are just from this fungus. And it can make it so that they're a benign nodule, but they can certainly look worrisome. So incidental nodule is someone comes in to our health system and gets a CT scan of their chest for some reason. It might be because okay. you got into an accident, car accident. Um, it might be because you're having shortness of breath. It might be something else. But you get a CT scan of your chest, and we're finding that people have spots on their lungs. And so we're actually seeing, we've ran the data on this, and we're seeing that 20%, approximately 20% of our scans have lung nodules. Yeah which ends up being a massive undertaking because if you think about that, it ends up being roughly 10,000 CT scans per year within our institution has identified incidental pulmonary nodules. So these are patients that may not have primary care doctors. These are patients that may have just come into the ER that are otherwise healthy. And a lot of them, if you look at the data on this, it's extremely worrisome. So some of the previous data that was studied on this um, by Michael Gould and colleagues, they were saying that there might be 1.5 million patients with incidental nodules per year. Um, Okay. And can I just say for an incidental nodule, what is the symptom that you might get from that? Nothing. Okay. Can it become something? Definitely. Like, is that why it's worrisome? Definitely. And this is the whole push too behind lung cancer screening. We've done so well, or we've had, we've made big strides with breast cancer screening, colon cancer screening, Um, but lung cancer screening, we're trying to make a push in that realm because lung cancer screening, before we started doing that, people would present with advanced stage lung cancer. Actually, the majority of patients would, three quarters of- Like my dad. Right. And at that point, it would already be advanced stage where you you don't have a lot of treatment options. So with lung cancer screening, the idea is that you take a higher risk population and you do low dose CT screening, CT scans. Okay. And what you'll see is you find a nodule and you want to pick them up in early stage because at that point, if it's just a single small nodule, you have the ability to- potentially cure it, whether it be by resecting it or radiating it, but there is um, the intention of curing it. So with incidental nodules, it it might be that there's 1.5 million of these um, per year in the United States. And think of this, in the percentage that could be cancerous, uh, probably around 1% to 2%. Could be mm-hmm. in Michael Gould's, um, uh, in his data, was up to 4%. But if you think about yeah. that, they were saying that that would be, in theory, close to 60,000 patients with incidental nodules that would end up being cancerous. Now, what's even more alarming is that up to two-thirds of these patients can be lost to follow-up. And why are they lost to follow-up? Well, 
simply because I'm healthy, I'm 40 years old. I came in, I got into a car accident. I got a seat right. on my chest. I feel fine. Um, I don't really have any other medical problems. And you find, you know, a six millimeter nodule and, you know, they may or may not have a primary care physician. They may or may not come back to be followed up for that. And they end up being lost to follow up. So that's why it's such a, um, such we have such focus on this because it is a huge opportunity where we can definitely impact patients' lives, especially Be we're talking about potential lung cancers. Because so it's preventative. So what does the AI do? So with those numbers that I told you, you can imagine yeah. no one would want to be the person that would be looking through the computer medical record and flagging 10,000 CT scans per year. Nobody would want no that way. job. Or if they did want the job, they would want it for the week and then they'd probably quit at the end of the week. But <laughs> ultimately, um, so there's just too much information. It's just far too vast and we need help. Okay. We need help. And there are certain things, if you're really automating something most of the time, certainly we have technology to be able to help us with that type of a thing. So with AI, there's different forms of AI and there's many different companies, there's many different technologies, but sure. there has been AI around um, in the medical field for years. What we're doing with our AI, how is it helping us? Well, the worry with this is that Perhaps, you know, this is going to be taking over physicians' jobs. It's going to be making clinical decisions. We're worried right. it may not make the right clinical decision. And then who's following up on that? Who's overseeing that? So that's where a lot of the worry is. But what we've done is we've implemented, um, an e it's called the EON system. Okay. And it has a proprietary artificial intelligence platform. And it uses, quote, unquote, um, computational linguistics, which is, Essentially, um, it looks through the, the electronic medical record and it will yes. search the entire thing. It searches the entire medical record that we're plugged into. It will go through all of these scans within the system. And our radiologists will look at the scans, they'll read them, and it'll go into essentially the electronic medical record. So what Eon okay. is doing is the AI is looking through all of those and it compiles them in a database for us. So, okay. so it doesn't make decisions from that perspective. It compiles them for us, puts them in a database, and then we have a dedicated team that then takes it from there. All right. So I'm sure our listeners were like, well, my God, it sounds like this was so easy. It sounds like they had no hiccups. It sounds like this was just poof, done without any struggle. Sure. Maybe share some of those and what the great, what your greatest learning lessons were around this. Sure. Absolutely. So um, what I've learned with this is first of all, implementing something is a massive undertaking, whether it seems like it's going to be something simple. And we all know that if you're saying, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. It seems very simple. But the reality is that a lot of these things are so many nuances behind them. There's so many different elements that may have been overlooked or that require a little bit more attention. So implementing a system like this actually was mostly, I'll, I'll give most of the credit here, to Dr. Sandy Starnes. She's one of our thoracic surgeons. She's the chief of thoracic surgery here at UC Health. She runs yeah. the um, lung cancer screening program. And the EON okay. system is used for that program, but it has another arm that can do incidental nodules. And so she has been working for, I think it was two years. Um, right when I started here, I know, I know she was working on it already at that point. And so she was trying to move forward with all of this. But again, it just kept... Um, it, it, there was just so many layers of um, 
not resistance, but so many layers of, of variables that really had to be considered, had to be looked at, had to be um, thought over. And I'll tell you, with the artificial yeah. intelligence system, it gave a lot of people angst, right? A lot of people angst. Yeah. Is that is, like I was telling you before, does artificial intelligence, is it taking people's jobs? Is it going to be making clinical decisions? Is it going to make the wrong clinical decision? Are we going to be responsible for some of these decisions? How exactly does it work? And there was a lot of unknown. So I think the unknown was certainly one of the barriers to overcome was the first thing. The second thing to overcome was volume. We, have, we didn't have a great estimate as to how much volume we were going to see. So okay. when we were trying to launch a, this program, we were saying, how, many, how much is our volume and how many people do we need to um, start this program? And so yeah. if you think about it, how do you start a program like that? Do you hire 10 people? and then turn a system on, and then what if it's not busy enough, or what if there's not enough right. volume for that, and then we hired all these people, they changed their lives, everything like that, and then the system doesn't work. Um, or do you do the opposite and say, I would like you to turn the system on, see what it does, and then depending on how much volume you have, we'll give you the staffing for that, which yeah. I'll tell you the second, the ladder of kind of what we did. Now, yeah. when COVID hit, um, we had obviously everything was impacted when COVID hit. Right, the, right. Every hospital system was. Oh, so, hold on. Can we do a pause? Yep. Um, listeners, uh, Chris wants to eventually do a podcast, maybe that gives people updates on um, I do. COVID. Just a COVID I know you do. podcast. We're going to do it together, COVID only, 24 7 COVID. If you have COVID <laughs> questions or you're interested in COVID, which is everybody, tune in. Dr. Chris. We got it. <laughs> Dr. Chris is your guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Sorry. We had, to, I had to bring that up because I, I think it's so great that you want to do that. Um, okay. So COVID hit. So COVID then- hit and everything for so many reasons, everything was impacted. You were impacted. Everyone was impacted. We were impacted. Every healthcare system was impacted. Um, it was the fearful of the unknown. Um, we didn't know about um, COVID-19. Um, there was postulated treatments that many of them didn't end up working after they were studied. Um, and there were just so many elements to COVID that were just so uncertain. And so what we had seen was from an elective procedure perspective, which is much of what we do, is that we put many of these procedures on pause because we were saying, look, there's COVID everywhere. Okay. We don't know how this is going to impact. And, it, and I'll tell you, there's so many details that you have to think about. You have a patient that's at home that's going to come in and they're going to get an airway procedure. Do you COVID swab them? Do you not COVID swab them? What about in the room? What about people's families when you go home? Um, Your family doesn't want you to come home anymore. Where do we keep them? Are they living in their office? There's just so many things to consider. And so when COVID hit, we ended up putting a hold on our, uh, many of our interventional procedures just to kind of figure out everything. So when we did that, we had, um, staff that, you know, was being kind of reassigned and put in areas of need. And so at that time we were saying, look, we know that if we turn the system on, it's going to be busy. We'll have some time. We'll be able to um, restructure things. We have the personnel if we need to. So what we did is we turned it on. And so it first started with um, me, even though I was working, you know, in the medical ICU, it seemed like almost every week there. 
Um, there was me, there was one of our nurse practitioners. I, I slowly kind of enrolled people, whether it was by choice or not. <laughs> You'll see um, my partner and boss, Dr. Alex Aragaki. He's, he's involved in this as well now. And I was saying, look, we need help. Um, and he was saying, no, I, I can't help. I said, no, you're, you're helping. So You're a doctor and a salesman. <laughs> so they ended up, everybody was enrolled. And so what we were seeing was we had um, CT scans coming in and they were coming in and we started seeing on the first day, I think we got 50 CT scans. And then we, but was that also because of COVID? That was no. So at first, again, good point, because we were thinking, well, is everybody getting CT scanned because they were coming in with shortness of breath and COVID and, right, and right. trying to figure that out. And at first um, we were thinking, okay, this might be an anomaly, but it actually truly has held up. So um, as I said, we, we're getting approximately on the first day, I think we got 40 or 50 CT scans to review per week. Now, I think it's around, um, we're around, you know, 200, I believe per week, somewhere in that realm, but it's roughly about 10,000 per year. Great. So um, then we implemented and then um, we ended up um, getting many people on board, had tons of support from the cancer center tons of support from um, Dr. Starnes and the surgery department, our department, um, all of uh, the people that were, um, that are running our division, they got behind us. And we ended up hiring a dedicated nurse practitioner, a nurse navigator, um, and we have dedicated clinic space now. We do televisits, we're expanding um, with hopes in the new year to Westchester. And um, we are basically, um, routed in through our um, multidisciplinary cancer center as well. So we'll present patients at tumor board. And this program has just become something that has just been so wonderful for patients. And if you I could be so, are you proud of it? Uh, you know what? I, um, I am very, very proud of it, but I'll tell you is that it doesn't have like the, um, like, I guess the cool factor compared to many of the other things that we do, you know? And so, um, well, it does, it does with the AI. I think so too. So actually, um, when we've gone through our marketing people, the, the, um, the public loves the fact that we're doing AI and it loves the fact that we're involved in research. And some of the yeah. research is very, very interesting where we're actually in the future talking about doing, being able to do a blood draw or even a swab your nose and tell if that nodule is cancerous. That's kind of the what? vision for the future. Yeah. How can you do that? How, how the technology, the technology has been expanding, um, again, with good, um, computer systems and, um, and computer learning, and then looking at different expression profiles of people's blood, blood draws. Um, some of the tests that we're involved in, we're involved in a clinical trial called the Oracle trial. Um, it's a very interesting test, but basically someone will come in with a nodule and many of these, sure, many of them are very low risk. And those ones will basically just follow to make sure that they don't change or that they go away. But most yeah. of them are intermediate risk. And those ones are tough to deal with. If they're high risk, you, you basically know what to do. You say, look, it's very high risk. We just need to be aggressive about our approach here. It needs to be either biopsied or cut out. But many of, yeah. the intervention, many of the intermediate nodules, it's kind of middle ground. And so it's tough. Like, do you biopsy those ones? Do you watch them? So what do you do with those ones? Can I ask a question? Pulmonary fibrosis, mm -hmm. is that, are those nodules or is that totally different? Different. So pulmonary fibrosis, certainly people with pulmonary fibrosis can have nodules, but pulmonary fibrosis is a different um, disease, different disease. disease. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Um, all right. So any, I, I, I got to ask you a couple COVID questions to close this out. Cause you know, we got excited about the company. Yeah. And that's any podcast. I know it is going to be, I'm going to help you launch it. Any other, any final comments around this program or advice to um, our listeners? So here's what I'll say is that now more than ever, you know, I look at my experience and I say, you know, I've had tough times. Um, I came from a family that no one was in medicine. The only reason I've got to where I was, was because of hard work. If everybody else, you know, got average grades, you had to be the best and you just had to study longer in order to make sure that that happened. But I'll tell you right now, going through kind of the training pathway that I have and going through the hardship that I have and the adversity is that you just find a way to overcome and just trust in yourself um, and just trust that things are going to work out and just stick to it and just be ever so vigilant and just make sure that you don't give up. And I'll tell you. Okay, hold on. Let's unpack that trust in yourself. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? So when you trust in yourself, there are certain things. If you have a mom, she'll have already told you this several times over, and it probably takes some time to settle in. But you know how your mom would always say, you know what? And and I used to hate this, by the way. You have a terrible (laughs) test coming up, right? A terrible test. You're nervous. You're scared. You have something going on in your life, and you're just worried that you're going to flunk it, that you're going to bomb it, that something like that is going to happen. And then your mom would come in, right, and say, why are you even studying? You know you always do good on these. You know you're going to do good. Don't even study. Just go to bed, right? And you're saying... She has no idea what she's talking about. But then in the end, you know, you go through, you stress, you do everything, um, you stick to your system, you do the test. And then in the end, you end up, things start, end up working out, you do well. And you say, you know, my mom was right. Like she knew something about that. And so what I would say is trust in yourself is that there are certain things about you that you know that you're going to be able to accomplish and you know, you're going to be good. And certainly with medicine, let me give you an example. In medicine, yeah. it's not always the smartest person is going to succeed. It really is not. And if yeah. it was something that they told you, you have to ace this test or you have to do this good on this test. Sure, there are going to be some people that maybe only have to study four hours and they're going to do good on the test. It might be somebody else that has to study eight hours or maybe somebody has to study 10 times as long to get that same grade. But if you know yourself and you're committed and you know that you can do that and you stick with it, then you trust that if you continue to work very, very hard, that you're going to be able to um, get that result, then that's where I would say you trust in yourself. And so for me, unpacking some of that is there was much hardship in my life. Um, I had gone when I had done my interventional pulmonary training, I left my family. You know, I have a wife and two kids. I left for an entire year. I don't think I've seen them twice. And that was a really tough training year. And I'll tell you, it was, um, it brought on a lot of stress with the family. It brought on um, a lot of adversity, but I just knew in my mind and in my heart, I said, you know what, if I stick with this, if I follow it through, I know it's rocky right now. I know it's very, very rough right now, but in the end, I am going to do my best at this and I am going to not give up. I'm going to succeed at this. And in the end, something may, something will be there. Okay. If so let it, me ask you this. Do you, was that modeled by your parents or was that just innate to you? You know, like, was it, um, yeah. I think that nurture go- versus nature. 
You know, I, I think that it was maybe a little bit of both, but I will attribute a lot of that to family. Because mm -hmm. um, when we were growing up, you know, I grew up, there were seven kids in my family. I'm the second youngest. So mm -hmm. my older siblings had done everything and had gone through everything. So by the time I was growing up, it was like they'd seen it all. So it actually was quite easy for me when I was, was growing up because they're saying, oh, you know, the older kids had already done this, you know. So um, right. it, was, it was easier for me from that perspective. But I will tell you is that um, from our, our family's perspective is that um, we grew up um, in a family where, you know, my grandfather, he went to World War II at age 16 and he wow. fought for six years. Um, and then he came back at age 22, married my grandmother and he became a farmer and he never said a word about the war for the remainder of his life, never said a word. And so wow. for my father, it was again, big families and it was, you know, that tough kind of upbringing that it was, if you say you're going to do something, you do it, you know, and if you yep. want to succeed in something, then you just go ahead and, and you, you find a way to accomplish that and you do it. If, like I was saying with the studying. If somebody found a way to motivate you, I'll give you a million dollars if you can get an A on this test. I'm sure that'd be enough motivation for you is that you can, yeah. can do it and you really can. It's just, you have to find out how much is it going to take to do that and you commit yourself to it and you do it. And so um, when I was in undergrad, and that's just how, how my whole life had been. When I was in undergrad, yeah. I went to school during the year from September through May. And then the day after I had finished my exams, I went off to a drilling rig and I worked the entire four months through on a drilling rig. Um, it was like 12 to 16 no hour days. Way. Yep. For sometimes there were some stretches where it would be, I would work unless the rig was shut down because of rain or something like that. And um, I worked all the way through, saved up enough money to go to school and pay for schooling for that part of the year. And I did that for three summers. Then in my last summer, I ended up getting a scholarship to do research. But that's how it was. And it was, um, don't rely on anyone else. It, people will, certainly it, it's good to have support. Don't get me wrong. It is very good to sure, have sure, support. Sure. But in the end, if you want something, go out and, and do it and just, and just, get it yourself. You know, if there's something that needs to be done, you're the person that is going to make that change. If you need to do something, get up, nothing's stopping you and you just go and do it. So speaking of nothing stopping you and getting up and going do it, will you uh, tell the story of how you met your wife and how quickly <laughs> you guys got married? <laughs> yeah. So this is, so this is actually um, very, very, um, a hot topic. If my wife listens to this, she's probably going to flip out. If my dad he better <laughs> listen to this. If my dad listens to this, he's probably going to say, "Oh, I can't believe he's telling you this," or something like that. But, um, so it's so funny. So looking at um, looking at kind of the training pathway, trained for fifteen years. Okay, fifteen years. Yeah. Everything was so calculated. But I'll tell you, this decision was one that was so impulsive that was not calculated, the complete opposite, okay? So yeah, yeah. I was in between medical school and starting residency um, in Kansas City. And so I'd gone back to Edmonton in Canada where I was from, and I was just getting my stuff. So my, uh, my father had gotten like this uh, holiday van, and we packed it completely tight. It was um, just a little bit of room left, right? And yeah. I was there with my friends. I was just seeing my friends, you know, one last time before I started residency. And so um, I, that one of the days that I was back, I was only back for one week. And on one of the first days I was back, I had met this girl and it was uh, my, my wife, Mindy. 
So I had met her and it was just such a crazy story. You know, I had met her. It was just something I usually would not be outgoing like that. And I, um, I finally got the guts. I went up to her and I asked her if she wanted to go out on a date or something. And, um, and she laughed wait, wait, at me. Where did you meet her? Like at a bar or something? Where were so you? I was in the mall, believe it or not. So it, there's much more to this story, much, much more to this okay. story that would okay, take okay, like okay. the hours, but really okay. it was a day that I was with all of my friends. We had okay, gone, okay. yeah, we had gone to the casino that day. Um, I hadn't gambled very much, um, but for some reason I was winning a lot. So we ended up going to the mall and there was like an area that we were hanging out and I spent all of my winnings at that area. And then that's when um, she was walking by and I went over and I um, said, so, I don't know, I said something, it probably was ridiculous, like you're beautiful or something like that. And, uh, and she thought I was ridiculous. So um, she left and she was saying, you know, this guy's just absolutely ridiculous. So. Then probably about 10 minutes later, she got a friend to like bring a little note that had her phone number on it. And so I had called her. That's cute. So get this. I had called her because I knew I was leaving in seven days. And I'm like, do I really even call her? Like, that's just unfair. Right. Unfair to right. at least like want to hang out with her and, and, you know, get to know her and stuff if, if I'm leaving. But you know what? Someone told me, I said, you know what? I'm just going to call. So anyway, I called her. I lied the entire week. You know, every question she was asking me, I couldn't tell her the truth. Like, she's like, where, where do you live? And here I was at my parents' place and I was saying, yeah, you know, I bought a place. I rent, I'm renting a place downtown, which is true, but it was downtown Kansas city. Not ever. like those types of lies. Right. And so um, ultimately we hung out for the week and then I came down to it where I had to tell her I'm leaving and I'm going to United States and she's going to be absolutely devastated. So then my older brother was a complete salesman, right? He's in sales. And he said, Chris, what are you going to say to her? And I said, well, I'm going to tell her, look, I haven't been forthcoming. I didn't tell you the truth. He said, no, no, no. Doesn't sound good. She said, why don't you try this one? I have an opportunity of a lifetime, you know, and I want to share it with you or something like something ridiculous like that. So anyway, I practiced all of this. Um, I went over to... I had my, the family was split. My grandmother was saying, go do it. You're young, you know, just go do it. My mother was supportive. My father was absolutely not saying, you're throwing your life away. You have a plan. He actually, actually said, we have a plan. This is not in the plan. This is not, we're not doing this. So anyway, I went and uh, talked to her. And as I was talking to her, it was like just the amount of heartbreak that I was seeing, like, as I was saying, look, I have to tell you something, I'm coming over, like, this is important. And it was just like seeing the devastation. So anyway, it completely impulsive. I told her it was, I went with like the sales pitch way that my brother was advising me on. I told her that, and then she was so devastated. So I, you know what, something just told me, I said, you know what, why don't you just come with me? And, uh, and she, well, hold on. She was sad. Were you sad? Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was saying like, if I have to leave like and long distance or something like that, it just probably won't work out. So, um, anyway, so what I did was I went over and, um, I told her the truth, told her everything. And I said, I'm leaving to Kansas city. And I said, you know what, why don't you just come with me? She thought it was crazy idea, but she said yes. And so she broke the lease on her, on her um, apartment. She dropped like her classes that she was still in at school. Um, and she ended up, um, we packed all her stuff like that night, stayed up all night, packed all the stuff, put it in the vehicle. And I drove home the next morning to see my father in the front driveway 
with this holiday van that was already packed so much, like right to the top. And I got out of the vehicle and I said, dad, how much space do we have in the, uh, in the van? And he said, well, it's going to be very tight, but I think we have enough. I got it all in. I said, well, we're going to need more room. And he, the emotion, I had seen my dad cry twice in my life. One was when my grandfather passed away and that day, and it was, the emotion was just unbelievable. So, um, so yeah, we ended up, um, so needless to say, my, my wife and my father, they, at the start, you know, it was tough, tough relationship at the start. Right. Um, but ultimately, um, so we ended up, uh, getting over it and, uh, she came with me. She got stopped at the border. Of course, we did not have adequate paperwork. We ended up. No. Having, oh yeah. 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 What? What did you do? So I had to leave her and go back to, I went to Kansas City. And then what I did was we had to um, get married. So we got shotgun weddinged and then waited for her papers. And then she came over. Okay. Uh, I don't think I knew that part of the story, but that's even better. Yeah, we did. And it's so amazing. now and, how many years later and how many children? So we've been married for 10 years, 10 years. She still okay. likes me. Okay. And I, we have two kids, two boys, um, six and eight years old. So awesome. Yeah. Such a good story. Yeah. It's a crazy story, but strangely enough, it was probably, it, it was, if not the best decision of my life, it was one of the best decisions of my life. And it happened yeah. so suddenly. And it was one of those things that was just impulsive. Like it, when you knew, you knew, and you kind of, yeah. and you just went with it, which is not what I, I do that's not kind of right. What that's probably not first nature for you. <laughs> no, but it, in that instance, it just was. Yeah, it was meant to be. <laughs> she all right. Well, any she wants us to, to. She always says that we need to make a movie out of this, and she's always saying, "Who is she going to get to play?" And I was saying, "I'll have like Jake Gyllenhaal play me or something like that," you know. Um, it, but it's funny, yeah. She's always saying, "Oh, we need to tell somebody our story and make a movie about it or something." But well, maybe maybe some um, crazy producer is going to hear it and writer, and they're going <laughs> to sure. make. No, it's a great story. I love it. Okay, Chris, any final um, thoughts for our listeners? Um, let me see. You guys, he planned a couple things. He wrote some things down, which yeah. I love. I can see him looking on his computer, just making sure he's hitting his notes. I did hit my notes, though. Um, is there anything okay. you'd like me to now, kind of touch on at the end here? Just with the maybe- wedding, the, ma- the, the marriage thing, you guys, was not part of our pre-call. So just so you guys it was know. not. Yeah, it was. Um, no, I just, I, I think just um, Lung Cancer Awareness Month is, it's really important. Um, and so, what if somebody was to have good lung health? What would you recommend they do, other than uh, the obvious things of like not smoking and sure. exercising and blah 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 blah? But do you go get a lung scan? Like, should I get a lung scan? So I think what you, where you start is um, for all of our listeners, if you're wondering about your lung health, um, if you have maybe a history, there's a lot of variables here that you may or may not know, right? Family history sure is one of them. 
Um, smoking, yeah, that's that's pretty obvious. If you'd been a smoker, you'd be at risk of certain lung diseases. But there are other things that we don't know. Exposures, right? Exposure to radon. I know everybody's checking our basements for radon. So what I would say is that it can be a tough decision. But where I would start is with your primary care doctor. So if you talk to your primary care doctor, they're going to do obviously a clinical exam first to see if you have any symptoms. And then they should be looking at you to see if you're a candidate for screening. And for screening, there are specific criteria for it, but the criteria are changing. So the general criteria are that if you're over 55 years of age um, mm -hmm. and that you have a 30 pack year history or more of smoking, I know that. Uh -oh, uh -oh. And, and the, other you know, I just want you to know, I grew up in the nineties and partially in the eighties and we smoked like all through high school. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. And if you had quit smoking, but it has been within 15 years, then you would be eligible for lung cancer screening and lung cancer okay. screening is a low dose CT scan. Um, it's um, much lower dose than, um, than a conventional CT scan. If you're in Colorado, the background radiation is that you're getting about 10 or 12 of these a year just from the background radiation. So it is a smaller dose of radiation. Um, okay. But I would talk with your primary care doctor to see if you're a uh, candidate, if you're eligible. We also okay. have a program here that you could certainly reach out to if you think that you meet those criteria. Um, it's The number is 584-LUNG. It's simple, 584-LUNG. And so um, we have experts that deal with lung, lung cancer screening, and um, we can see if you would be a candidate for screening. Just because you may not be one now, the criteria are changing, whether the age might be changing, the amount of pack year history might be changing as well. But I would just okay. check on that. And if you're a candidate for it, like I'm saying, I think that you would be, it's very good to be, uh, to see if you're a candidate because then um, you can get a low-dose CT scan. And potentially, if you do have a nodule, if you do have a worrisome finding that could be cancerous, the hope is that 75% of these patients were not finding in stage 3, 4. 75% right. of them were finding at very, very early stage when there is a chance for a potential uh, cure. Good. So I'm I'm a little sad because we didn't get to talk COVID because then I got really excited about the wedding story, mm -hmm. but um, maybe that'll be our next conversation. Let's do let's do another one about COVID, like COVID where we are, and I would love to take you through. Here's what I can I can do. I can take you through because there's if you're talking about however you want to do it. If you want to talk about just COVID, how we failed, sure. If you want to talk about if you want to talk about COVID how it's impacted patients, yeah. practitioners, providers, those types of, we can do it. If you want to talk about COVID, the hope for the future, I think yes. that you certainly could do that. Chris, you, dude, you just, you've got multiple episodes here. You could. Yeah, because I'll tell you, get this, is that COVID. <laughs> you got, he's getting so excited. It's yeah, yeah, no, I yeah. can talk for days about this. Yeah. So with, with yeah. COVID, there's like, we've, first of all, how did we fail? Well, we've done so many um, treatments for COVID that we've, we've tried, hadn't worked. Um, there's been such impact. Uh, we've lost trust of the public from the, from a healthcare provider mm. perspective because of all the misinformation and because of the changing recommendations. Um, yeah. um, the public is at a point where 
um, where, you know, it's impacted everybody's life so much so that just everything is upside down right now from just a day-to-day living. So there's that. And then the future can be bleak or it could be, you could see that there's hope, right? And I'll tell you, if you want me to say, why is the future bleak? I could give you 15 minutes of why it's bleak. Why is it hopeful? I could give you another 15 minutes of why we have hope, but there's findings on both with both regards that are suggesting that it might be very, very bleak. The vaccination trials might be the, the answer to providing a little bit of hope for patients. But it is uh, tough. It is going to be very, very tough. And moving forward, this changes the way of life as we know it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, my friend, we, this is a great interview. Thank you for taking the time. I'm so appreciative. And you like, you brought such positive energy to my day. Well, thanks for having me. Honestly, I'm happy to do these. If you need me um, to, if you want me to kind of like rally the troops, if there's somebody that you're interested to say, look, I want it so-and-so, you just let me know. I'll go track them down. We can do whatever. I've I've brought in like Aragaki into so many things. I brought in Will Zacharias, who's like one of the researchers who studies like COVID in the lab and stuff like that. Um, I have access to all of that. If you want to do it, you just let me know and we can easily do that. All right. Okay. You're the best. Thank thank you. Of course. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hey, listeners. So when I first started the podcast, I wasn't sure where it would take me. I just knew I was meant to do it. Don't ask me why or how, but I just knew. And starting it three years ago, I wondered how else can I use what I learn in those episodes and teach others? Well, Move Forward Group Coaching takes our guests' best practices, the Enneagram assessment to tap into personal motivations. We teach you how to turn around your limiting beliefs. We use neuroscience's methods to create new habits. You will create a one to three year move forward plan. So if you are ready to get unstuck and face your fears and move forward, this 10-week program is just for you. For more information, you can go to our website at failforwardpod.com. I want to thank our sponsor, Health Carousel, and everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at failforwardpod.com. 